everybody. Good morning, everybody. My name is Brayden. If we haven't met, I might pass this to you, Jeff. Thank you. Uh, and I will be um, opening up God's Word from that second passage we had read out this morning, uh, the one from John's Gospel. I want to begin by asking you all a question. We are looking at the question, is peace possible? But I want to begin by asking you all a different question. That is, what has stopped you in life ever from trusting someone? What has ever stopped you from trusting someone? Now, my wife, Maren, and I, we started dating when we were 15, so teenage dating. And I think if you ask her what it's like to think back on that time... Oh, yeah, I forgot that was in there. <laughs> she doesn't know about that. She'll find out at EC tonight. Uh, so I think if you, if you ask her what it's like to look back on that time, she would use the word cringeworthy. Cringeworthy. She doesn't want to remember the awkward hand holding, the awkward first kiss, or meeting parents as 15 year olds and they're confused about how to interact with us. And it was all just a bit weird. But for me, for me, the one thing I don't want to look back on and remember is the first time I ever asked Marin to be my girlfriend. It was one of those times where someone gives you a piece of information that you rely upon so heavily, you trust that information, you're happy to take it, and you go in with utter confidence knowing what you have just heard. And so my friend had said to me, Brayden, Marin told me, which is the classic start in any kind of teenage dating saga, Marin told me, if you ask her out at the party tonight, she will say yes. So, of course, you can imagine, my heart's pounding, I'm excited, I'm ready to go in, I'm ready to be like, yes, I'm going to ask her to be my girlfriend, it's going to be amazing. So I do, I approach her at that party, Marin, will you be my girlfriend? Well, Marin said, I need to think about it. <laughs> Crushed. What was there to think about? We'd only spoken about three times before. <laughs> anyway, two weeks later, she comes up to me, she's actually thought about it, yeah, good on her. And then she says, no. <laughs> Don't you think it'll be a good idea to get to know each other first? And I was like, not really, let's just get into it. <laughs> but I never trusted that friend again. You can imagine, right? I wonder what has stopped you from trusting someone? Maybe something a lot less trivial than that. Maybe something like an investment that's gone wrong. Or a doctor has given you an incorrect diagnosis. Or maybe there's forgiveness from a friend or an apology from a friend that's then, that they then turn their back on. Or maybe it's promises at a wedding that have uh, been betrayed. I wonder, has something stopped you from trusting God? Is there something right now this morning that has stopped you from trusting God or that is still stopping you from trusting God? As I said, we're looking at that question, is peace possible? And I want to suggest, yes, peace is possible, but only by trusting someone, only by trusting in the risen Jesus. But is there something that might be stopping you from doing that this morning? Maybe it's grief. Maybe you think the suffering that I face in this life makes me question God's plan, makes me question his goodness. Maybe it makes me even question his existence. Or perhaps not grief, but maybe it's fear. God, I have done far too much wrong. I have done far too much against you. I can't possibly trust you. I can't possibly come before you. Would you even accept me? Or maybe it's doubt. God, I can't see you. I can't touch you. So I can't trust you. 
We're looking at this section of John's Gospel where we actually see the first three times that Jesus appears to people or a different group of people after he has been raised from the dead. On Friday, if you were with us, we saw the horror of Jesus' death, which actually achieves that peace for us. This morning, we see that the death wasn't the end, that Jesus rose from the dead, securing that peace, and is in fact able to bring us into everlasting peace with God. Peace is possible by trusting in the risen Jesus. Now, we're going to look at these three appearances. The first is an appearance to Mary in her grief. The second is to the disciples in their fear. And the third one we'll look at is to Thomas in his doubt. I'm going to quickly pray and then we'll get into that first appearance. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the Bible. We thank you that it is your word and we thank you that it tells us all we need to know you and to have peace with you. I pray this morning you might enable me to speak clearly from your word and that we all might have hearts changed toward you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So the first person we meet in this passage is Mary. Now, uh, she's followed Jesus during her ministry. We're told during his ministry. And we're told, actually, that she was healed by Jesus in another part of the Bible. And in fact, that she probably financially supported Jesus. So this is a woman who is very close to Jesus, but has also been quite heavily impacted by his ministry. And so you can imagine that as she stands outside his tomb, he's dead. She is devastated. Her weeping isn't a surprise to us. Here is a woman who is grieving deeply, but we find out that it's not just because she's lost Jesus. We find out that when the angel actually asks her, why are you crying? She says, well, they've taken away the body of my Lord. You see, it's, it's not just his death that is making her upset, but it's because these burial practices have been violated, so her grief is actually intensified. This is a deep grief that she is experiencing. And it's in that moment of intense grief that she notices someone behind her. She's made aware of someone at the entrance of the tomb. And she turns and she sees Jesus, but she doesn't realize it's him. And Jesus asks the same question, why are you crying? And it's funny because she answers, you know, she thinks he's the gardener. Oh, you're the gardener, you've taken his body, don't worry. I'll get the body back wherever you've put it. You just tell me, I'll bring it back, it's all good. I won't tell anyone sort of thing. But Jesus basically just ignores her response. And then he responds to what she says with just one word. Her name. Mary. Is that what you expect? He's just risen from the dead. One of his close friends, one of his followers, someone who financially supported him right there. And rather than saying, hey Mary, look, it's me. Remember this face? It's Jesus. We hung out for like three years. He just says her name. Mary. You see, Jesus doesn't reveal himself to Mary by trying to explain to her who he is. He reveals himself to Mary by showing her that he knows her. He reveals himself by telling her who she is. I know you, he says to Mary. Earlier in this same book of the Bible, the Gospel of John, Jesus says that he is the good shepherd and he tells us that a characteristic of the good shepherd is that he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. 
Jesus is this shepherd who knows his sheep. He knows them personally. He knows them by name. And so here Jesus speaks Mary's name in the middle of her grief. In the middle of her grief, she is met with recognition. She is met with someone who knows her personally. Knows exactly who she is. And when he calls, she recognizes him. She says, teacher. Jesus is revealed to her not because of Mary's own ability to see, but because of his ability to know who she is. I think if there is one thing in this world that really disrupts our longing for peace, it's got to be grief, right? I mean, the sadness we experience in the face of death or other tragedy in the face of serious illness or breakdown of relationship, that grief, it kind of permeates those things and it sort of laughs in the face of the question, is peace possible? Ha, of course peace isn't possible. Look at our grief. But I think Jesus' appearance to Mary stands in objection to that. And it says, no, Jesus can bring peace even in the midst of deep grief. He meets Mary's grief by knowing her personally, by revealing himself to her as risen from the dead. And you might say, well, obviously that helps her grief. Her grief is so tightly associated with the fact that he's dead. And now he's back. Happy days for Mary, right? She's got what she's been longing for. My grief isn't fixed like that. People I've lost haven't just come back. How does this solve my issue? I wonder, have you ever thought about the fact that Jesus knows you? That God knows you by name? And I think that at the core of being known by someone is that that person knows exactly what we need most. Exactly what we need most. Now, we mightn't feel like our grief can be fixed like Mary's was, but I think Jesus' next words suggest otherwise. What I think is fascinating about this passage is what Jesus actually says next to Mary. She recognizes him, calls him teacher, and then he says, don't hold on to me. Don't hold on to me. I know I'm back and I know you're happy about that, but don't hold on to me. Now, it's not literal holding. It's that idea like at a wedding where the parents might let go their child and hand their child over to be married. Or a relationship that you might go, you know what, actually, if this continues as bad for me, I might let go and stand back from this relationship. That's the idea of this do not hold on to me. Jesus is saying, actually, having me back here physically is not the purpose of my resurrection. It's not the purpose of me being raised from the dead. I was raised for something more. I've got to actually go somewhere else. I've got to go be with my father, your father, my God, your God. You can imagine Mary being like, what? You're back and, and now you're going? I mean, she doesn't actually do that. Mary's just got him back and now he has to go. I was actually chatting with someone who owns a cafe earlier this week. And he mentioned that one of the things he enjoys about working in a cafe and owning a cafe, being a barista, is he's able to create moments in a day for people to just have peace, to just, just kind of forget about what's going on back home, maybe financial difficulties, 
maybe destruct, you know, broken relationships, maybe tensions. He's like, I can create a moment where they can just smell nice coffee, drink and taste a nice coffee, have a conversation that never scr- barely scratches the surface, and just for a moment forget about what's going on in life. Maybe it's not a coffee shop for you. Maybe you're like, this doesn't sound peaceful at all to me. Maybe it's a nice hot bath with a book or your favorite TV show. Or maybe it's a solitary walk through nature. Or maybe it's like a crazy game of sport and that actually just helps you to take your mind off. Or maybe it's working out or exercise, whatever it is. We have these moments where we can just stop, forget about the hecticness of life for just a moment. And they're sweet. But that's the thing, isn't it? They are just a moment. It all returns. Jesus is saying, I am not back to offer some temporary relief. I am not back just for a moment of peace. No, the peace I am offering is eternal in its scope. You see, now that Jesus has defeated death, he's saying, I have to return to my Father in heaven, the eternal dwelling place. The peace I offer is eternal, everlasting in scope. Maybe you're angry at God because he hasn't brought you peace in those difficult times. And maybe you feel like he doesn't care, but I want to encourage you, stick with me this morning as we keep going through this passage because the reason Jesus doesn't offer temporary relief is because he knows us. He knows us by name and he knows what our real need is and he seeks to deal with that real need, the cause behind our grief. And I think we see it so clearly in the second appearance, the appearance to his disciples in their fear. The scene changes. The disciples are all Locked in a room. You can kind of imagine they're probably sad. They've lost Jesus, who they've been following. It's probably quiet. They're nervous. It's probably a bleak picture. At least this is how I imagine it. These people, they've just spent the last three years of their lives following Jesus, almost giving everything for Jesus. And now he's dead. Gone. What? But not only that, everyone's turned against him. Three or four days ago, everyone in the city is yelling, crucify him, crucify him. What are they going to do now? Are they going to come for us next? We're told that they locked themselves in the room because they are scared of the Jewish leaders. Their fear has placed them there. In the context of the Gospel of John, this book that we're looking at, We read about Jesus promising peace to his disciples on several occasions. In fact, he's actually told them that he's going away and then he's going to be coming back again. The disciples have been made aware of both the death and the resurrection of Jesus and the peace that's to come. But not only that, they've even said that they will stand by him no matter what. But it seems they've forgotten, right? They're cooped up in this room, locked, afraid, confused, not knowing what to do, hiding. What do you expect the risen Jesus to say to them? What do you expect him to do when he comes and finally meets these guys? What are you lot doing? It's only been three days and you've already forgot everything that I've said to you. Peter, you said you'd die for me. And now you're locked here in your fear? Is that how you expect Jesus to respond? Well, he rocks up and just utters four little words. There they are on the screen. Peace be with you. 
No hostility, no inaccessibility, no volatility, but perfect amiability. He's not angry. He's not hostile toward them. Jesus hasn't abandoned them. He's still accessible to them. Jesus isn't unpredictable. He's not volatile. He meets them with perfect friendship, amiability, reconciliation. In fact, the disciples are met with the very words that encapsulate the promise that he has been making to them throughout John's gospel, peace. In the year 2000, the popular rock band U2, my dad's favorite band, released a song called Beautiful Day. You might know it's probably one of their more well-known songs, but on the same album, released in the same year, they released a song called Peace on Earth. And one of the reoccurring lyrics is, Jesus, can you take the time to throw a drowning man a line? Jesus, can you take the time to throw a drowning man a line? Now, I think if Jesus actually had to answer that question, he would say, I already have. Bono, I already have. You see, the very next thing that Jesus does after saying, peace be with you, is he shows, him the scar- shows them sorry, the scars. Look at the scars on my hands and the wound in my side. The very next thing Jesus does toward his disciple is show the marks that were left by his death. The marks that were left by his crucifixion. Again, like Mary, he doesn't point to his face. He doesn't bring out some obscure birthmark that is sure to identify him. He says, no, look at the marks of my death for you. You see, Jesus died on the cross because we had a death sentence. Not him, but us. Jesus died on the cross because we have a death sentence and we have that death sentence because of our sin. Our sin is our rejection of God, whether by ignoring him or by actively rebelling against him. And it's the cause of our separation from God. Our sin is the reason that we're not right with God. It's the reason behind our fear, behind our grief, behind our doubt. It's the reason we do not have peace with God. And the Bible says we've all sinned and that the wages of sin is death. Our sin causes us to be drowning, to be in desperate need of a lifeline. And God sends Jesus, who lives a perfect life, a life without sin, totally innocent, to die willingly in our place so that we could be forgiven for our sin. And that's why I think verse 23 of our passage says what it says. I think Jesus is saying, I have made it possible for those who trust in me to have their sins forgiven. So when you declare that they're forgiven, they are. When you see that that person trusts in me, you can declare that their sins are forgiven. You see, the forgiveness of sins through the death of Jesus Christ is our lifeline. And Jesus completes that lifeline by rising from the dead, bridging the separation so that he could say to us, just like he says to his disciples, peace be with you. No longer separated, but reconciled. No more hostility, 
but friendship. No more inaccessibility, but access to the God who made us in perfect relationship forever. Peace with God. No more fear, but love. I wonder, do you fear trusting God? Are you afraid that maybe you have done too much bad stuff for God to possibly forgive you? Or maybe you're afraid that, um, of what others might think. Maybe you look at the media and you're like, man, Christians get a bad rap these days. I don't really want a part of that God. That's scary. But maybe deep down you're like, ah, I know it's true, but I'm a bit afraid. I'm a bit afraid. And then maybe your fear is heightened because you're like, oh, maybe now I'm not worthy because I'm afraid, because I'm questioning. How's Jesus going to respond to me? Well, he says, peace be with you. Peace be with you. You see, to have peace with God isn't based on how you feel God is going to react towards you. But it's based on the scars that were left that represent what he has done for you. It's not based on how you feel God is going to react, but it's based on what Jesus has already done on your behalf. Jesus, can you take the time to throw a drowning man a line? I think the answer is Jesus did take the time to throw every drowning person a line. Jesus did take the time to throw every drowning person a line. How do we grab hold of that lifeline? Well, I think we see this in our third appearance, the one where Jesus appears to Thomas. We're told one of the disciples, Thomas, is not with the others at that first appearance. So the other disciples, they go up and they tell him what's just happened. We've just met Jesus. He's back from the dead. How good. And he's like, whoa, 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 hold up. Unless I see the scars, unless I touch the wounds, I will not believe. He wants to see it. He wants to touch it himself. He wants to know for sure. Otherwise, he is not going to believe that Jesus has risen. Now, sometimes I read this, I go, fair enough. You know, we kind of have a mantra in our society, seeing is believing, right? Isn't it sometimes our experience that we just wish God would rock up physically and stand here and be like, hey, and then we'd be like, sweet, we're in. Or that Jesus would walk across right now and show his scars and we'd all be like, yep, I'm 100% in, I'm all yours, God, forever. Because now I've finally seen it in the flesh. One week after Thomas says what he does, Jesus rocks up again in the middle of his disciples. This time, he only talks specifically to Thomas. You can imagine the others are there, but it's just him and Thomas. And straight away, he goes up, put your finger here in my hands. Get your hand and put it in the wound in my side. Then he says, stop doubting and believe. Jesus completely meets Thomas where Thomas was at. Jesus fulfills the things Thomas was asking for. Here they are, Thomas. Here are the scars. You wanted to see them. You've got them in front of you. And then Jesus literally says, and I think we've really got to hear this, stop your unbelief and believe. Stop doubting and believe. Stop your unbelief and believe. You got what you wanted. Thomas, now trust me. Trust in me. And maybe like, yeah, if I was there, if I was Thomas, I'd do the same thing. I'd say, my Lord and my God. I'd stop my doubting and I believed. If only Jesus just rocked up, but he hasn't, so I won't. 
here is what I think this passage says to you, if that's where you are at. You don't need to. You don't need to see to trust Jesus. You don't need to touch him to trust Jesus. You don't need to place your finger in the scars to receive him as your Lord and your God. In verse 29, Jesus says, Blessed are those who have not seen, yet have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, I actually don't think this is a strange concept to us at all if we really think about it. One really simple example. We, 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 believe, to be, we believe to be certain about being... Sorry, I have no idea what I wrote in that sentence. I want you to picture a courtroom. Let's try again. Picture a courtroom. The jury, they're not at the event of the crime, are they? They're not at the event of the crime. Yet they have the evidence laid before them. They weigh it up. They deliberate. And they can come to a verdict if they are determined that they're beyond reasonable doubt. They don't have to see the event in order to determine that it was true. And I think there are so many other examples. We, don't have, we believe things all the time that we don't see. And we believe them to be true. You see, what Jesus, I think, is doing when he's telling Thomas to touch the skies, he's saying, come and inquire. Look, they're here. You wanted it? Here they are. I'm really risen. But the thing John does, the writer of this gospel, a bit later in verse 31, is he makes the same appeal to us. He says, I have written these things down so that you might believe. So that you might believe who Jesus is, that he's the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. The same appeal is made to you. Look at the evidence, John says. It's all written about who Jesus is. And you can come, you can inquire, you can test, you can read the Gospel of John. There are actually four accounts of Jesus' life in the Bible that give evidence for all that he did on your behalf. Come and inquire and see if it matches your experience of the world. And then once you've done that, stop your unbelief and believe. Christianity makes a big claim. It makes the claim that at the center of everything, life, death, heaven, hell, creation, sin, salvation, your future, my future, at the center of everything is one man, a real man who really lived and is the son of God. And how we respond to him determines whether or not true peace is possible. That's the central claim Christianity is making, one man on whom hangs everything. Read, investigate, take your questions to what was written down so that you might believe. You don't need to physically see Jesus to reap the rewards of what he has done for you. But you do need to believe, you do need to trust in him. The crucial part of what Jesus says to Thomas is that stop doubting and believe. Stop your unbelief and believe. He's seen the scars. He touched the wounds. But Jesus still said, you need to believe, mate. He needed to trust in Jesus as his Lord and his God. Come a long way through this passage this morning. We've seen that Jesus has risen for more than just temporary relief. But he's risen to make true peace possible, reconciliation with God, your maker, through the forgiveness of sins. We've seen that Jesus has taken the time to throw every drowning person a line 
When I was quite young, my family went to Wet n Wild, you know, the theme park on the Gold Coast. And I was in the wave pool. I'd swam out pretty far whilst it was quite calm. But then as the waves started to, to kind of increase, they got a little bit bigger and the regularity increased as well. And as it kept going, I started to panic. I started to freak out a bit and eventually started to kind of drown. And I vividly remember, I have a vivid memory of looking up and seeing the classic red and yellow lifeguard uniform right there and trying to wave the guy down and didn't see me at all. So I'm drowning, I'm I'm not drowning, but I'm very close to drowning and suddenly I just feel an arm, a hand grab my arm and start pulling me in. Now can you imagine this? Can you imagine if I kind of put my head up out of the water and went, what are you doing? That guy is going to get me eventually. Just leave me here. I don't trust you to save me. I don't need your help. Look, he's not looking at me now, but he will later, I'm sure. That would be ridiculous. You'd be like, you're an idiot. Why would you do that? No, I trusted the person. They took me to shore, and now I'm here today. I wonder, are you going to be like Thomas, who does trust in Jesus? He says, my Lord and my God, are you going to keep doubting You're going to stay in your unbelief. I want to say to you all this morning, trust in the lifeline that has been put there for you. Trust in the one who has offered his life to save yours. The peace of reconciliation that Jesus has won for you and for me needs to be grasped by belief, by trusting in what he's done for us. He has taken the time to lay down his life to offer all drowning people a line. Maybe it's your grief. How can peace be possible in this world of grief? Well, Jesus has come to deal with the cause of grief, not just offer temporary relief. Maybe it's your fear. I have done too much wrong. After all I've done against God, how could peace really be possible? Jesus has dealt with your sin. Forgiveness can be yours. You can have true peace, reconciled to God forever. Maybe it's your doubt. How can peace be possible if I can't even lay my eyes upon him? Well, it's all been written down for you so you can have new life and peace with God by trusting in him. Peace is possible by trusting in the risen Jesus. I'm going to pray. Father, I pray that we'll all respond to you with trust. I pray that with how we are feeling right now, we might recognize who you are, what you've done for us, and that you've conquered death, securing that peace on our behalf. Father, help us to stop our unbelief and believe. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.